Welcome to Lesson 16 of the Gospel According to Moses. This is a Torah study for Christians. And Torah is the first five books of the Bible. And in Jesus' day was the main scripture. They had the entire Old Testament. But the Torah, the first five books, were the foundational books of the entire Bible at that time. You can imagine the early church proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom using the Torah. That's all they had. And that's why we say the gospel according to Moses, because we're looking for the gospel. The gospel of the kingdom in the Torah. The Bible that they used to change the world prior to 100 AD. Shalom, this is Reverend John Ferret. In the next few podcasts, we'll be dealing with the account of the flood. All the way through chapter 9 through 10. And in this session, lesson 16... Our focus is going to be really on two verses and one phrase in one of the verses. I'm in uh, Genesis chapter 6, and I'm reading verses 1 through 2 from the New American Standard. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Now, we're going to be taking a look at that phrase, the sons of God. And the New American Standard, what I just read, seems to imply that these sons had some sort of a relation to the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Israel. Some that among us say that they are evil angels. Also, some refer to them as the Nephilim in verse 4. But clearly, if you're going to approach God's Word from a scholarly point of view, we find out the scholars have struggled with this phrase right from the beginning. Most of us, though, only accept one view, that they're fallen angels. That is only one view of a certain group of commentators. However, if we put the Bible in its historical context... We say it was written by Moses. This is the 15th century B.C. The first hearers, the ones Moses would be writing to, were the thousands of Hebrews coming out of Egypt. So I would say it was written to us. It was written to them. It made sense to them. So for them, in the mid-15th century B.C., they get it. This idea of B'nai Elohim. That's what it says in Hebrew, B'nai Elohim. Dennis Prager, in his commentary on Genesis, he has come out with the Rational Bible, and his first book was called Genesis, God, Creation, and Destruction, the Rational Bible. Dennis comments on this, and he says... It is essential to recall that the Torah had to be relevant to the people living then, 3,500 years ago, and they understood parts of it better than we do today, just as we understand parts of the Torah better than people in the late Bronze Age did. It had to make sense to them. So for us, let us try and hear God's word like them. 
Let's try to hear the word like those thousands who were redeemed out of Egypt in the bondage of slavery. So if we can take the Bible and put it in historical context, what the church largely ignores, we're going to see that our understanding becomes clearer. We're going to take a look at real alternative views of this phrase, B'nai Elohim, that makes sense. That makes sense and are more applicable and realistic to our lives today. Not fallen angels. In a sense, we're going to see that Torah, God's Word, His Bible from Genesis to Revelation, is applicable to today as it was the days that it was written. So you ready? Come, this is the way. Jesus is the way. Let's go and study. Starting in Genesis chapter 6. So if you could open up with me. I'm reading from the Fox's translation. And just as an aside, I don't like any translation. About the only two translations I like are the New American Standard and the King James and Fox's. However, this is new to me, uh, Fox's translation. Uh, and even then, I kind of disagree with some of the things. But uh, we have a translation. We don't have the original. So, from Fox's translation, starting in Genesis 6, 1, I read, Now it was when humans first became many on the face of the soil, and women were born to them, that the divine beings saw how beautiful the human women were. So they took themselves wives, whomever they chose. Let me just stop here and ask this. What do you guys have in your Bible for now, I have that the divine being saw how beautiful the human women were. What do you have? You've got the sons of God. What translation do you have, Bruce? You got ESV. Okay. Anybody else? Any anybody else? Something different? Bill, what do you have? Sons of God. Okay. And you have translation, New American Standard. Anybody else have anything different, Rachel? Sons of the rulers. Now she is going from. A Jewish translation in the Chumash. Chumash stands for the five, okay? And that's interesting. We'll get to that. So we have sons of God, and Fox has divine beings. The Chumash has sons of rulers. Interesting. We'll come back to that later. Yes? I know. We'll be dealing with that in detail. Yes. So thank you, Laura. Laura said that it says B'nai Elohim, and we'll be dealing with those two words in detail tonight. So in verse 3, we continue. Yahweh said, My rushing spirit shall not remain in humankind for ages, for they too are flesh. Let their days be then 120 years. The giants were on the earth in those days, and afterward as well. What do you have in verse 4? Giants? Nephilim. Nephilim. Anybody else have anything different? Anything different. Okay, and here we have giants and Nephilim. Everybody's got Nephilim? Okay. The giants were on the earth in those days and afterward as well when the divine beings came in to the human women 
and they bore them children. They were, uh, they were the heroes who were of former ages, the men of, the men of name. And Yahweh saw that great was humankind's evil doing on earth, and every form of their hearts planning was only evil all the, all the day. Then Yahweh was sorry that he had made humankind on earth, and it pained his heart. Yahweh said, I will blot out humankind whom I have created from the race of the soil, from man to beast, to crawling thing, and to the fowl of the heavens. For I am sorry that I made them, but Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. Verse 9, these are the beginnings of Noah. Noah was a righteous, wholehearted man in his generation. In accord with God did Noah walk. Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Yefet. Now the earth had gone to ruin before God. The earth was filled with wrongdoing. God saw the earth, and here it had gone to ruin, for all flesh had ruined its way upon the earth. Just as an aside, again, as I'm reading from the Fox translation, what is he's attempting to do is to try to be as precise as he can from the biblical Hebrew. So it sounds kind of strange when you're listening to it, but that's what he's attempting to do in this translation. Okay, Verse 13, God said to Noah, An end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with wrongdoing through them. Here I am about to bring ruin upon them, along with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. With reeds make the ark, and cover it within and without with the covering of pitch. And this is how you are to make it. 300 cubits the length of the ark, 50 cubits its breadth, and 30 cubits its height. A skylight you are to make for the ark, finishing it to a cubit upward. The entrance of the ark you are to set in its side with a lower and uh, a second and a third deck you are to make it. As for me here, I'm about to bring on the deluge, water upon the earth to bring ruin upon all flesh, that has rush of life in it from under the heavens. All that is on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you. You are to come into the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you, and from all living things, from all flesh, you are to bring two from all into the ark to remain alive with you. They are to be a male and a female each. From fowl after their kind, from herd animals after their kind, from all crawling things of the soil after their kind, Two from all are to come to you to remain alive. As for you, take for yourself from all edible things that are eaten and gather it to you. It shall be for you and for them for eating. Just as an aside, this is very interesting. I want you to let you know that they were plant-based eaters. Right there. Because the animals are eating plants and Noah and his family are eating plants. Very interesting. They start eating meat later, but they are plant-based. Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. Chapter 7. Yahweh said to Noah, Come, you and all your household, into the ark. For you, for you I have seen as righteous before me in this generation. From all ritually pure animals, you are to take seven, and seven each, a male and his mate. And from all the animals that are not pure, two each, a male and his mate. Now let me just stop there real quick on the clean animals. You probably have clean animals. And it's interesting here because Fox is talking about ritually pure animals. There was no kosher in these days. The Torah was not given. This is not kosher. In the ancient Near East societies, all of them, Egypt, Canaan, Assyria, all of them, they had animals that were called ritually pure, clean, if you would, in the Hebrew, 
so that they can be used for sacrifice. It's got nothing to do with eating. It's got nothing to do with the Torah or the laws that are given on Sinai. Nothing. Okay? This is history. And so, indeed, they have to get ritually pure animals as they understood them at that time. So, verse 3, And also from the fowl of the heavens, seven and seven each, male and female, to keep seed alive upon the face of all the earth. For in yet seven days I will make it rain upon the earth for forty days and forty nights, and will blot out all existing things that I have made from the face of the soil. Noah did it, according to all that Yahweh had commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the deluge occurred, water upon the earth. And Noah came, his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, into the ark before the waters of the deluge. From the pure animals and from the animals that are not pure, and from the fowl and all, the, and all that crawls upon the soil, Two and two each came to Noah, into the ark, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. After the seven days it was that the waters of the deluge were upon the earth. In the six hundredth year of Noah's life, in the second new moon of the seventeenth day of the new moon on that day, then burst all the wellsprings of the great ocean, and the sluices of the heavens opened up. The torrent was upon the earth for forty days and forty nights. We'll stop there. What's very interesting is when we take a look at verses, especially 1 through 4, Hebrew scholars, Jewish scholars, and Christian scholars will tell you those first four verses are probably the most problematic in the entire Bible. They don't know what they mean. And there's a lot of guesses out there. Now, Fox, in verse 2 of chapter 6, he said they're divine beings. Okay, that's Fox. Some of you have the sons of God. Now what's fascinating is, not only Fox, but also some other scholars, they'll go to verse 3, and there's an implication that these divine beings, what you would call the sons of God, if you look at it in verse 3, it says they're flesh. God is saying that they're human. That's what he means. If you look at it, it's got to be true because, I'm going to read this very carefully, Genesis 6, verse 2, that the divine beings, or in some of your cases, the sons of God, that the divine beings saw how beautiful the human women were. So they took themselves wives, whomever they chose. Here's verse 3. Yahweh said, my rushing spirit shall not remain in humankind for all ages. Humankind is flesh, right? So it's redundant when you read this, for they too are all flesh. They too also. The implication in verse 3 is the divine beings are human. Now that gets real interesting, okay? Because with regards to Fox and his commentary, he says this, there seems to be a biological mixing of the gods and men in dim antiquity. Perhaps this fragment, which initially seems difficult to reconcile with biblical ideas about God, has been retained here to round out a picture that was familiar to ancient readers. They get it, you don't, because this book was written to the Hebrews 3,500 years ago. Something is going on that they understood, and this is where scholars are really landing. They're saying all of this about the sons of God, seems to be something very familiar that they would have got, they would have understood. And to recall the early closeness of the divine 
and the human at that time. Now, now in our culture, in our days, I've heard people say, oh, these are fallen angels. These are fallen angels that are actually having relations with women. Okay? Uh, I've also heard it said that some say these are demons. Now, our purpose is this. Our purpose is to take a look at this, and I want to understand what the Hebrews understood when they're coming out of Egypt. This book was written to them, not you. It was written to all of us. These first 11 chapters, they're not written to Jews. These first 11 chapters, they're not written to the Hebrews. Okay? They're written to all of us. It's the first 11 chapters is about the whole world. So there's a message that God is trying to give to us. So I want to take a look at this from a historical perspective and to see if I could suggest to you perhaps what might this all mean from a historical perspective. First of all, let's take a look at the word Elohim. Elohim can mean God. All right? So let me just give you a few verses. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, Elohim, God, created the heavens and the earth. Here's another one. I'll go to Genesis 1.6. Genesis 1.6. Then God, Elohim, said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Now I'm reading from the New American Standard. I can give you verse after verse here. Let me just, I'm going to go to Deuteronomy 26.1. And Deuteronomy 26.1, I read, Then it shall be when you enter the, the land which the Lord your Elohim, God, gives you. Elohim is a word chosen by Moses for God. Every time it's used in the Hebrew Bible, it's followed by a singular verb. So in other words, if you say John drove his car, okay, John, singular, drove, okay, uh, they, they drove, it, it, it's a singular construction of a Hebrew verb, always. So every time you see a singular verb in Elohim, it's always God, the God of the Bible. However, Elohim, oh, and let me just stop you real quick also. Why did Moses do this? He's inspired by God, and he's using Elohim. I suggest to you, this has a lot, a lot to do with the ancient culture. A lot to do. And we have to go through this to get through it. You'll see what I mean. It could very well be that God, this word Elohim, okay, means this is one God. He has all the powers. He's got all the glory, all the purposes, all the status of all gods. So when men are looking at the gods of the Greeks, the gods of Rome, the gods of Egypt, and you say, oh, look at all these gods, look at all they do, look at all their purposes. No, what Moses seems to be doing is taking all of them and saying they're nothing. There are no other gods. Because all of that power, all of that glory is into one being who has plural manifestations as one indivisible one with multiple power, multiple manifestations. That's a possibility, okay? And I say it's a possibility only for the simple reason that Moses never told us, okay? So we just have to guess. Now, Elohim can also mean gods. It can mean gods. So let me give you some verses, and there are just so many, just in the Torah alone, 
I'm going to go to Genesis 31.30. In Genesis 31.30, we read, Now you have indeed gone away because you long greatly for your, fa for your father's house. But why did you steal my Elohim? You stole my gods. The word is Elohim. It's got nothing to do with the God of the Bible. Another one. Let's go to uh, Exodus 12.12. 12. I love this one. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the Elohim of Egypt. So, I mean, if you say Elohim means God, God just says, I'm going to destroy myself. That, that doesn't make any sense. So, Moses is doing something very unique with one word, okay? But it can mean God's. And every time you see Elohim with a plural verb, it always means God's. However, there's a third meaning. And David does it. David uses the word Elohim as rulers. And it doesn't happen very much. Psalm 82, verse 1. In Psalm 82, verse 1, we have the psalm that says, uh, and it's, not, it's a psalm by, uh, of Asaph, it's not by David. God takes a stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers, in the midst of the Elohim. So now we have another ancient use of the word Elohim. Could be rulers. So when we're reading here in Genesis 6, and we're saying, what is it? Is it the Son of God? The sons of God? Because it says, B'nai Elohim. Okay? The sons of God. Or the sons of gods, or the sons of rulers. Which is it? Moses is not specifying. So let's take a look. To do that, I have to go to B'nai. When I take a look at the word Ben, okay, in Hebrew, that's son. B'nai is a certain way of uh, saying sons, uh, with regards to a certain ending, uh, meaning that it's possessive. But benay or benim, means sons. Everybody agrees with that. However, it's a Hebrew word. Like shalom does not mean peace. Peace is part of shalom, but it's bigger than that. The same thing with sons. The same thing with benim. Benim, now listen to this. This is in the Gesenius lexicon. And remember, if any of you come to me, and you bring the Strong's Concordance, and you say, here it is, and here's the meaning of the word bene, okay, I will take the Strong's Concordance, and I will cut it up into little tiny pieces, and you will have it for lunch, okay? You never, ever, ever use a Strong's Concordance to define a word in Greek or Hebrew, ever. If you ever read the introduction to a Strong's Concordance, it says, what is it to be used for? The location of a word only. It doesn't tell you the use of the word at that place. So with the Gesenius lexicon, probably the best, when you go into the Gesenius lexicon, it means sons, or listen to this, it means adherence to a certain cult or members of a group or a class or a religious group. That's bigger than sons. That's actually quite amazing. Now, Dr. Livingston and those of you who are on the email list, you will get the link to this article. This article by Dr. Livingston at his website, he's saying, you know, when we take a look at these verses, 
Genesis 6, 1 through 4. We need to go back to ancient history because perhaps we can find the answer. Or we can find evidence that suggests a may more reasonable solution. So with regards to this, I'm going to page 6 in his article. And he talks about the definition of bene, all right, from Gesenius. And he goes into history. And in history, for instance, as he's saying, the sons could be members of a religious system. So, for instance, in Genesis 33.19, I'll go to Genesis 33.19, we read this. In Genesis 33.19, and he acquired the piece of territory where he had spread out his tent from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, for a hundred lambs worth. Now, when you look at commentary, on B'nai Hamor, the sons of Amor, it means those are men, people, that are part of a group belonging to Hamor. How many sons does Hamor have? We don't know. He's got one for sure, but they belong to Shechem. Now, Hamor also, in history, is not a king. It's a bunch of goat herders. So it could be a bunch of goat herders, and it just so happens the king is named Hamor. The point being is, it's Bene Hamor. These are men who are part of a group. Here's another one. This is it's in the Old Testament all over the place. For instance, you'll find the sons of the prophets. That means there are people, Bene Navi, Navim, okay? These are people who are following a specific prophet. They're called sons. Do you remember when Paul calls Timothy his son? Now, those of you who have taken my class in discipleship, that's rabbi speak. Rabbi speak, a rabbi will look upon their disciples and they'll call them sons. The disciples themselves will look upon their rabbi and call him father. So when Timothy says, you are my son, he's saying, you, you're Ben, okay, you're Benay Shaul, it means you're a member of my group, you're a disciple. And it, and it fits, again, the Gesenius definition or the Gesenius conceptual idea of this word. Here's another one. This one is very interesting. For instance, in the city of Ashur, which became the center of the Assyrian Empire, and this was in about the 7th century B.C., they had a patron god whose name was Ashur. That was the god of the city. In the 7th century B.C., about 650 B.C., the well-known Assyrian emperor, Ashurbanipal, came to power and took upon himself a name. And the name means Ashur has made a son. What did he just say he is? Benay Elohim. He's the son of God, or the son of a God. So, Now, this gets interesting. Let's stop now and think about this. Let's think about this as Hebrews who are just coming out of Egypt. Now, if you recall from previous lessons, we have discussed about the fact that they probably assimilated into the Egyptian culture. For the most part, most of the Hebrews forgot the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember, in other lessons, I proved that unequivocally from the Bible. Okay? If not a simulation, they really integrated themselves into that pagan culture. 
So they're leaving. They're leaving Egypt, and they get to read this for the first time. Remember, I'm saying and suggesting to you that one way of looking at Genesis, one way of looking at the Torah, all of it, all five books, is to try to understand these five books from the way they understood it 3,500 years ago when they're coming out of Egypt. Now, this is interesting because they were slaves in Egypt, correct, for 400 years, and they had to deal with the pharaohs. This is something so easy when you study Egypt. But see, nobody studies Egypt, unless you take some of my classes and we're studying Egypt. The pharaohs were called the sons of Ra. They were the sons of the gods. And the Hebrews get it. They understand it. This is not the son of God. These are the sons, all the pharaohs. Now, they were there for 400 years, so there were a number of pharaohs that were ruling over them and keeping them in slavery. So, you guys, we have history suggesting a plausible idea of B'nai Elohim. In the verse, chapter 6, verse 2, who are the sons of God? They're not the sons of God, the sons of the gods. In other words, pagan kings. So that ends session 16. And we've come to grips with the phrase B'nai Elohim, sons of the gods. It really makes sense that the Hebrews get it. They were the ones that left Egypt. And the pharaohs, the kings of Egypt, were the sons of the gods. So in the historical context of taking the Bible, putting it back, to where it belongs, looking at the original audience, those first hearers of God's word, those that, fr that first audience that was really the ones Moses was writing to, we get an alternate view. An alternate view that's ba based upon valid Hebrew interpretation of the phrase B'nai Elohim. And we can see this alternative view makes a lot more sense to them and to us. I mean, when I think about us, and I think about those days, pharaohs, the sons of the gods, treated as God, had the power of God on earth. I think about Hitler, I think about Stalin. They hurt, murdered millions. They acted as if they had some sort of divine authority. It reminds me of being the sons of the gods, being like pharaohs, doing anything they wanted. In session 17, we're going to continue this study of B'nai Elohim, the sons of the gods. There's a lot more to take a look at in this realistic alternative view of who they were and what this all means. And then we're going to come across another interesting word. In Genesis 6, starting in verse 3, we read, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. 
So now we come to the word Nephilim. Now, as I mentioned before, there are some among us who say that the Nephilim are the sons of God, as mentioned in 6.2, using that English phrase from the New American Standard. There are others among us who say it came from the sexual union between the sons of God and the, the women, uh, human, human women in their marriages. There was rabbinical commentary that talks about the Nephilim, and they say in their rabbinic commentary that Nephilim actually comes from the verb nafal. The problem is that is one view of one sect of Judaism. Not all Jews agree to this. Many Christians have bought into this hook, line, and sinker as if all Judaism believes this, and they don't. It is one piece of rabbinical commentary in the Orthodox tradition. In other words, they say nafal is the, uh, the Hebrew verb meaning to fall or to fall upon. So therefore, that must be the Nephilim, the fallen ones. No, there is no etymological evidence anywhere. In other words, that is studies of words. There is none anywhere evidence of any connection between Nafal and Nephilim. It is only in the mind of the rabbis. And I can see how they're getting it. And we buy into, so many of us buy into, only one view, the rabbinic view. And the rabbinic view is not scholarly. It is not based upon etymological evidence of the Hebrew words. This is a serious error. Now, I am not trying to take the rabbinic view and throw it out. I'm just saying that's one view. We need to study this word in a lot more depth to actually get out who were the Nephilim. What does the Bible say with regards to who they are? Because this is not the only place we're going to come up with this. So in Lesson 17, we're going to enter and strive into that study to try to find some plausible alternatives, just like we tried to find plausible alternatives with B'nai Elohim, the sons of God or the sons of the gods. We're not going to reject outright other views. I'm going to respect the view of the rabbis. I can understand where they're coming from. But again, we're going to attempt to find real scholarly alternatives. Alternatives that seem to make more sense to them 3,500 years ago and to us as well. So, I'll see you then in Lesson 17. Shalom.